Welcome to the latest episode of this podcast, which is, as listeners will know, all about international approaches to European medieval history, talking to historians based in different countries. The podcast as a series has a kind of general focus on the 11th century, but every rule has an exception. And this episode is one of those exceptions, because I'm delighted to be joined today by Longguo, who's an associate professor in Beijing, and by Yin, who teaches history at Zhejiang University, um, who are both specialists in early medieval European history um, whilst teaching in China. Thank you for joining me, both of you, Longo and, and Yin. Oh, thank you, Charles. Thank you for your invitation. Let me begin, if I may, with, with, with you, Longo, because you've recently published this article, From Walking to Sitting, Changes in Practices of European Historiography from Ancient to Medieval Times, and that's in Studies in Chinese History. Um, and I wondered if you could just say a little more about what you were trying to show, what you were trying to argue in, in that article. It's my pleasure. Uh, originally, uh, this article was first uh, published in a Chinese version. I have discussed in this article about Mercer or the way or the manner by which the historians from the ancient Greece to the early Middle Ages, how they collected their sources, how they get the historical information about the events or the persons they described. Through this study, I have found that the three different phases in the long history of a Western historiography. In ancient Greece and Republic Rome, historians in general have had to work hard to visit the, the sites or the, even the whole world they know, through which to support the narrative, to find witness, just to inquire about historical story in order to write. In this way, they become themselves become a witness to the historical events mm. and offered the first-hand evidence or sources to the narrative. The most excellent examples <laughs> may be Herodotus, Tukididos, Xenophon, Polybius. They all have to or were forced to leave their hometown because they were exiled and the country. And by this way, they have to keep on going and walk from one location to another location. By this way, they can, can work as a witness to the history mm -hmm. events. Secondly, with the transformation or transition to the rule of the empire, Roman Empire, or the power or the authority concentrated in the hands of the emperor, now this condition for the uh, communication, how to get information changed. That's to say uh, the various information run or spread with the reports which were given to the emperor. So if you just keep contact with the emperor, you can easily approach various information uh, from the every part of the empire, in the frontier, in the different uh, uh, provinces, such as this. So from then, for, for the historians, the necessity to collect sources for the writing was not so urgent than the predecessors. For examples, 
Tacitus region is uh, one of the greatest historians of the Roman Empire. He just wrote a very famous uh, book, a little book, Germanus. There is a hot debate, had ever a hot debate, um, whether Tacitus had ever walked to, to the frontier provincials to see by himself those barbarian groups. However, at the point of the argument of my article, the debate is to some extent not so important as we have taken it for granted. Behind which we might discover a great transition of the manner how historians to collect historical sources just based in the capital, at the capital city at Rome, just today at the Senate, or just to approach the emperor, Tacitus could collect various sources for his writing, for his narrative about the Germanus. The three phase of the, this transition was the now early Middle Ages. The atmosphere of the culture in the early Middle Ages was very different from the late Roman Empire. The historians were, without exception, uh, the clerics or monks. As a cleric or monk, they were restrained in their church or cloister or the monastery without permission of the bishop or the abbot, they could not leave their church by their own will. So as a result, they have to sit, if I can use this word, sit at the scriptorium or just stay at the church or the monastery. They don't have a chance or many chance to walk out in order to collect sources for the historical writing. So in this space, I have regarded Bede Venerable as the typical example who re represents the group of historians in the early Middle Ages. Because Bede was a monk, he just uh, lived for York for uh, once a time. Okay, so from his uh, just uh, seven years old, until his birth, he stayed just at the Jaro. So that's the main argument of my this of my paper. Thank so, you very much, Longo, for that uh, exposition. I mean, that's I think this contrast you set between the kind of movement from history as a process of roving inquiry to becoming a desk job, so to speak. I think this example of Bede, as you say, he never leaves Jaro, right? Maybe goes to York, but he writes about areas, vast areas of the world, despite just being very spatially confined. And so that's a really, it's such an interesting kind of fresh perspective on a change in, I mean, for you, I think, in your argument, it's a change in historical um, epistemology, right? It's, it's what is the nature of historical truth? How do we get to that? And we move from Herodotus and Polybius saying, you know, I was there, I, I, I saw it to Bede, who says, I've got the proofs, the written proofs. And I thought that was such an important kind of insight, actually, into, into how historical knowledge is constructed and changes in that. Um, this leads me on to my next question. 
because your article was published long ago in English anyway. You said it was published first in Chinese, but in English it was written, um, it was published as part of a special issue um, of articles about European history or actually about European history writing in particular. And all of these were written by um, scholars based in, in, in China. And actually there's a lot of work right, happening in China right now looking at European history and I wondered if this is, I mean, for a question really for both of you to bring in uh, Yin as well. Could you say a little bit about how the early Middle Ages fits into this general interest in, in China in, in, in European history about, you know, compared to other periods of, of European history? Uh, recently, Professor Edward Wang and I, with uh, a Japanese historian, had edited a new book for the great, the great the German publisher a new book with the title Western Historiography in, in Asia, Circulation, Critiques, and Challenges. There are uh, more than 20 scholars from China, also from Korea, so, uh, South Korea, um, also from Japan. They contributed uh, chapters for this book. Just as you have observed, that there's a great enthusiasm among Chinese scholars who just like to do research on the Western historiography. However, I'm a little surprised with the question. As the old saying goes, not sit for rest for the trees, because I'm just only uh, living in China. So I, I have not any conscience about it. Uh, this tendency. So thank you so much for your question. This question has, um, in fact, inspired me to reflect my experience of which China has a long tradition of historiography, especially the Tan Dynasty, the, the royal government organized large group of bureaucrats to write history. So from the earliest time, generations of Asian Chinese historians showed a great interest for the record and report the historical events, what they have seen. In the 8th century, a big figure, uh, Zhi Ji Liu, have already written a synthesis book on how to write history by analysis of the history of historiography. So from then on, there are plenty of discussions or works on the Chinese historiography. So there's a great tradition. Uh, in China, the medieval studies are not an independent field, as the case in the United Kingdom and the other Western countries. By contrast, it's only a small subfield of the world history or the global history. The world history includes the history of the national states, such as uh, uh, English history or the history of the England, history of the Great Britain, and history of the France, such as this, but also the ancient history, early modern history, and even modern history. So uh, the word, word history, introduction to the historical studies and the history of historiography are the three obligatory courses for all the students in the Department of World History. So that's a special uh, academic institutional background. 
With such a background of the academic institutional system, the history of historiography is very popular in China. When the view of the history of historiography, early Middle Ages or the late antiquity is one of the key turning points from the classical historiography to the medieval historiography, the rupture and the continuity took place at this period, still wanted more nuance and also objective uh, research. Especially as a foreigner, we might have a, a better understanding of the great tradition of Western historians and historiographers. The biggest challenge for me and um, the other Chinese medievalists might exist in how to understand the Christianity of in the Middle Ages, or in other ways, uh, what, uh, especially how to understand the religious ex expression of the early medieval historians, because the majority of us did not have any deep religious experience. That's a great challenge. How can we or could we have a sympathetic understanding of them, of the early medieval historians, especially the passion among, among the writings or behind the writings, the, the passion for the, for the miracles, for the religious experience, for the piety and something like this, probably for the young historians, Chinese young historians, for example, you uh, might have a better idea how to approach the early medieval history but with reference to uh, the, his own personal uh, religious experience or something like mm -hmm. this. I, I hope, I hope. So uh, we might change the topic to, to Yin Liu. Please, yeah, I mean, but thank you very much, Longo. But yes, uh, Yin. Uh, thank you for, for Longo, uh, who is actually my... Uh, Supervisor of my uh, master's <laughs> master thesis, but yeah, I mean, uh, thank you very much, uh, Charles, for inviting me to this uh, conversation. I think it's very interesting, and it's a very, you know, exciting experience for me. I never uh, had this kind of uh, uh, scholarly interview before, so it's very exciting for me. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a follow up what uh, uh, following up what Longo has said about the early Mid Middle Ages as a sub discipline in the study of the history of early Middle Ages in China compared with other periods of uh, European history, I would say uh, from my experience, I think my experience is maybe a little bit different from Longo since we're actually belong to two you know, generations. I, I've got ten, more than 10 years younger than, than him. And for me, like uh, when I began my, you know, my interest in, uh, in history as a discipline, I think one thing that's exciting me is how to challenge the old grand narrative about uh, the world history. And, and as you know, in China, we used to, uh, to teach and learn the world history in a Marxist structure. So which means there is a, uh, which makes a distinctive, let's say a rupture uh, between the classical, classic history and the maybe the feudal Middle Ages or uh, this uh, medieval period. So maybe in this sense, the early Middle Ages itself, it's, you know, it's something in between. And it, it makes, a, you know, a challenge to, to study this period. 
is it just something of the age of tradition, uh, transition, or maybe it has own nature, which makes early Middle Ages a uh, you know interesting topic for Chinese scholars from my point of view. On the other hand, I would say uh, there are some advantages for Chinese scholars to uh, Chinese historians to start their you know their research uh, from the early Middle Ages because we have much much just systematic uh, critical edition and uh, good English trans uh, translation of early medieval sources compared with later uh, later periods. I mean, we have a very good series of uh, uh, English translations. I think it's a Liverpool series and the Manchester series. Uh, both are kind of a focus on the, this uh, late antique and early Middle Ages. So I think there are some objective and subjective reasons for early Middle Ages uh, kind of uh, uh, stands out as mm -hmm. uh, you know as, as uh, you know period uh, European in European history compared with other periods. So this Thank is something yeah. I want to to add up to to yeah. Longo's uh, comments. Yeah. I mean, thank you very much to both of you. I think that's very interesting. This focus on, on I mean, so everywhere in the world, uh, people, historians do think about history writing as in about, about, about historiography, but it sounds as if this is a real focus in, in, in China, maybe more so than in the UK. I think this point about the early Middle Ages having a special relevance from a Marxist frame of view in the point of it being a transitional stage from the ancient to 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 the feudal is is really is I hadn't thought about that before. And come back to Longo's point about religion too. Obviously, yeah, this is a as as in Longo's article, this is a period in which history writing you can kind of see that 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 religious mentality really shaping uh, their perceptions of of the world around them. Um, can I just continue this line of questioning just a little bit more because? Talking about the early Middle Ages, we've been talking about the early Middle Ages in general, but I think I, I know you, uh, Yin, and, and I think you as well, Longo, have worked on the Carolingian Empire in particular. Um, and, and I wondered if you could say within the early Middle Ages, is, this a, is there a lot of attention or focus on the Carolingian Empire? Um, I mean, how does that kind of sit in this, having kind of narrowed down the Middle Ages to narrow it down again to the Carolingians? Um, is that seen as more important than, for example, the 11th century, which... I, I, uh, this podcast is 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 nominally anyway uh, about. Let, let me be the first to talk about uh, to answer this question. For sure, uh, at the present, uh, the study of early early Middle Ages in China belongs to Charlemagne, his empire. I'm very curious uh, to discover or, or find that there are so many colleagues do some researches on Charlemagne. For the Carolingian Empire, no matter how, no matter how they have based the study on the other period of the Middle Ages. Very luckily, I have written my PhD thesis on Henry II, just the famous king of the Plantagenet, uh, under supervision of Professor Ma Keyao Ma, who had written the first Chinese monograph on the medieval Europe. So. That's a great breakthrough uh, in the history of the Chinese uh, medieval studies. Only recently, we have congratulated his 90th birthday. So, <laughs> so that's a great experience. After I have finished, uh, I completed my PhD, I changed my mind. I'd like to know whether I could find a field where I might read all the primary sources so I have then to the 
early Middle Ages, especially the Merovingian kingdoms. That's why I have visited uh, as a visiting scholar to University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana in the 2005 under the supervisor of uh, Professor Ralph, Ralph Martinson to, to pursue my uh, study of Merovingian kingdoms. And then uh, five years later, I went to University of Leeds and the supervisor of a vision of a Professor Young Wood to continue my study of the Merovingian kingdoms. I have learned very, mu uh, very much from the, the professors and their colleagues. Um, Ralph and uh, Yin, they were the big giants in, in, the, in this field. So there's no, not so much of the place for me to base myself. So I turn again my attention to find another my own field. That's the Carolingian period, especially Charlemagne. Charlemagne is absolutely one of the key attractions for the Chinese readers because he is called the great. Nearly every student at the University of China may know this guy, little or more. Comparing with him, the other Carolingian names may be a little obscure, such as Louis the Pious, Lothar, Charles Bird, etc., etc. The other Carolingians hardly occupy any place in the memorial of the Chinese student. However, I believe the 11th century will be in the coming future also one of the hard fields for Chinese scholars. As you may have known that the majority of the Chinese medievalists is more or less Marxist, so that it's not surprised that they will do some research about that century when the feudalism developed huge greatly, or even the feudal revolution took place. However, at the present, my colleagues have known that there is a hot debate on the feudal revolution or the, the current mutation of the millennium. But they have not yet time, find time to do research in some detail. Probably that period is not as easy to deal with as the Carolingian Empire because there exists, just as you have argued, no royal argument or strong royal government or, or strong kinship or public institutions. Chinese historians preferred to do history of institu institutions, maybe similar to the uh, constitutional history of England or something like this. As the Carolingian Empire could provide us the, how, how to say, public framework through which we can observe or investigate the historical events to, in some depth. So, on the other hand, in the 11th century, there exist too many of the principalities, too many of the bishops, this is the age of bishops, too many of the dukes and counts. 
only the names, these various names, they deserve posed big challenge for me, the Chinese foreigner. So not to mention the various uh, geographically location and so on. I hope that in the coming decades, by communicating with you and other Western colleagues, Chinese medieval East may also do their own contribution to that century. At least I have heard that Yin has promised me to do some research on the high Middle Ages. So now it's your turn, Yin. Thank you very much, Longwo, and I think um, just to jump in before, before Yin, um, thank you for that, so much for your intellectual trajectory from the Plantagenets to the Merovingians and then to the Carolingians. And I think this point about the difficulty of studying the 11th century when there is no single dynasty, there is no kind of single archive, so to speak, which you can track and follow, it's, it's much less coherent, right? And I guess it does make it more difficult to study. But yeah, sorry, uh, Yin, o- o- over to you. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, let me start with uh, maybe a, a anecdote. It's a, uh, I think it's two thousand and fifteen. There is a, uh, there was an international conference in Beijing, and a lot of uh, Carolingianists and, and other you know medievalists were invited to Beijing to to attend this conference. It's about the you know the rupture and continuity between the classical world uh, to the uh, Middle Ages. I was asked to pick up uh, uh, Professor Helmets of the Princeton. From the airport to uh, to the uh, to the conference center, and in the taxi, kind of uh, I uh, we have this kind of conversation with I, I with uh, uh, with Professor Helmets about the why a Carolingian maybe period attracted uh, you know Chinese scholars and uh, and and after the conversation, Helmets make this comment that it seems like the Carolingian uh, empire was something like Chinese centralized uh, dynasty dynastic empires that never really, you know, uh, lasted. So I think it has something to do with those Chinese history that we Chinese historians are familiar with from our, you know, from the beginning. And also it's about sources. Since in the Carolingian period, they have uh, this kind of uh, official sources, but it's complicated, but we we are, you know, since the 19th century, we we know that the annual uh, Reckonifian Quorum uh, was a kind of official history for the Carolingian Empire or Carolingian Kingdom, and uh, and in China, uh, a student want to start start learning Chinese, uh, for example, when certain dynasty in Chinese history, maybe his advisor would suggest him to start with the official history of that period. So uh, I think maybe Carolingian history is was just easy for Chinese scholar to start with because we have this kind of uh, official. History and we have Einhardus Vita, which uh, was not actually an official text, but it's uh, from a from official. Let me put it this way. So maybe it has something to do with this. And and also I think uh, at least for me, I think I have interest in the whole Middle Ages and uh, Carolingian, as Longo has said, Carolingian period was kind of uh, the real start, real beginning of the uh, of the Carolingian Europe. So uh, it's just uh, I have this interest in investigating how how this Carolingian regime, uh, what's the legacy uh, of this Carolingian regime, and uh, and uh, which seems like you know it's it's like a both a foundation, uh, it's a foundation for the later the High Middle Ages, but for the 11th century, uh, as Longo said, it's really from my side point of view, it's as as you as you just uh, commented, it's 
it was difficult, you know, to start with, you know, uh, even a textbook. And for me, I have a great interest in the 11th century. And for now, I mean, I, I would like to uh, explore in which sense is the 11th century maybe departed, you know, from the Carolingian regime. That would be maybe uh, a starting point for me to to study the 11th century in the future. I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. In an absolutely fascinating point, yes, that kind of um, think about the continuities and the discontinuities between the Carolingian and the and and and, and post Carolingian history. And I think the point both you made that in some ways Carolingian history is recognisable within a Chinese frame framework of reference because it is a kind of dynasty, right? And you can kind of what well, it is a dynasty, and you can see. Um, dynastic history writing, as well as the rise and fall of this of this of this imperial dynasty, um, um, so recognisable in a, in, a, in a Chinese framework. That's fascinating. I haven't I haven't thought of that. So thank you very much. Um, Longwu uh, and, and, and Yin, actually, you both mentioned briefly translations, um, and this leads me on to um, my 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 next question, which is about the sources. And I was interested, Longwu, in your article. I looked at your footnotes, easy, and I noticed that the venerable bead. I was fascinated. His Historia Ecclesiastica um, Gentis Anglorum was translated into Chinese in 1991, um, which is you know, uh, something to think about. And you, you mentioned uh, just now the Liverpool and the Manchester sources, of course, which are in, in translation, which are very useful in, in the UK as well. How How is Latin taught in, in Chinese universities and how much has now been translated from Latin into Chinese? You are absolutely right. In 19, uh, 1991, the Ecclesiastical History of the English Nation is one of the world classics uh, been, uh, translated into Chinese. However, unfortunately, the translator used only the English translation of a king and lead. So, not based the translation and the Latin version. That's not a surprise. When I did my PhD studies in the middle 1990s, I did not yet know any Latin. At that time, I could only read English besides my mother, mother tongue, Chinese. There was not any systematic Latin training or Latin teaching at the, the University of China. But now, more than 30 years later, I teach each semester the medieval Latin. Now, university has already provided a series or a cert of Latin courses, which are organized by the Center for the Classics. So that's great. In Beijing, there is uh, the Another university, Beijing Foreign Studies University, Latin is even offered as a major for every other year. The younger medievalists have good Latin. So I, I'm according this as a Latin revolution in China. <laughs> you might be surprised that the center uh, of the classics at the now university also have su- successfully organized a Latin proficiency test for the Chinese students. So the test is regularly scheduled in each May. Every year, there are about 50 students who register and take the test. If a student has passed the intermediate level of the test, he would be very competent for PhD studies at the now department. So that's very helpful. Recently, with the help of my colleagues, also uh, included uh, Li Yinliu, I have edited a set of translations 
titled with Studies of Western History, which published yearly the translations of the primary medieval sources from the Greek or Latin. Uh, Yun Liu also have continued to contribute his translations in each volume. Yun Liu might have another experience of absolutely better experience of Latin learning and such on. So, Yun? Yeah, I can, I can just follow up what Longo has said about the Latin learning in China. From my own experience, I, I learned actually, literally, I learned Latin from Longo when I when I studied in Beijing University, uh, Peking University, I think around 2007, I learned the the, uh, the beginning Latin, uh, beginning Latin and the, and the intermediate Latin uh, with Professor Longo in in his course. And for now, I think the uh, the the whole you know the the condition you know the condition to learn Latin in Peking University and in Beijing, uh, in China in general, uh, has been much better than when I. When I when I uh, started Latin, when I begin to study Latin, and as Longo has has said, uh, there is now a center of classics uh, in Peking University, which is uh, which offers very professional, you know, Latin courses taught by Latinists instead of you know historians like me. But I think it's uh, in China the uh, the condition, uh, the resources, Latin learning resources. It's not quite, you know, even. Let me put it this way. For example, in Zhejiang University, which is also one of the top universities in China, which I uh, I'm not teaching in, there is no Latin uh, the system, Latin course system here in this university. So, which is kind of a representative for many, you know, many good universities in China. So the resources is not quite even. At Peking University is the exception. Uh, instead of uh, uh, the the euro case, so uh, this is one thing I want to say. But another thing I want to add is, for now there there are a lot of uh, there are more and more undergraduates who had uh, who are qualified to uh, in that Latin. They can read Latin much better than me, and uh, they have much experience in learning Latin, uh, both classical Latin and ecclesiastical uh, Latin. Uh, and for now, I think the, maybe the next challenge for Chinese scholars is, is how to use Latin in our own uh, research, not just to learn Latin, how to read Latin, but how to use Latin in, you know, in, uh, in case studies, in research. So there is a, still, I think there is a gap between Latin learning and, uh, and, uh, you know, and research. So uh, that's why I think maybe, uh, just, uh, just as Longo said, maybe the, the critical translation Will would help you know to to fill this gap. Uh, for me, I mean, as Longo said, there, we have a journal now. It's like a, it's it's more like a journal for for friends like us. As uh, for me, in my case, uh, in my case, I have translated into Chinese the Kasuf's letter to Charlemagne and uh, and also uh, uh, later the the Archbishop of Lyon's letter to Charlemagne. And for uh, and Longo has translated, I think, uh, at least the uh, the capitulary of the eight hundred and eight hundred and six. Uh, the divisio regnorum, so and other and there are other contributors. So I think there uh, th there are critical translation in the sense that uh, we have very very detailed footnotes and uh, comments, and it's it's just follow just follow the examples as I said the Liverpool series and or the Manchester series how they do. So I think that would be a good start, a good departure, since students who or uh, other our, our colleagues who read those translations would not just uh, to uh, to just to know the sources, but to know how to how to start from the source to 
go in depth to go in depth to to do some research. So I think maybe this is what we uh, would like to do. I mean, in the future, one of our common you know uh, uh, projects. Fascinating. Thank you. I mean, I think lots of people listening to this podcast maybe will be amazed to hear how much interest and attention there is to, to Latin. And I, and I think and I think this point, which you made, uh, in a Latin translation is one thing, but um, an annotated or a kind of uh, glossed interpret uh, translation is very different, isn't it? Because a naked text is quite hard to interpret. But yeah, it's, uh, if you use, if you apply your knowledge to bring these texts to show what's important, this is this is a different a different thing, and you know, in, in some ways, more important. Well, I've taken up a lot of both of your time, so I'm going to move now on to the last question, which is just a very short question. Um, uh, what are you both working on now? I mean, translations by the sounds of it, but but yeah, what what what's the current focus of of, of your research? I'm now uh, just writing a book and the uh, historiography of the early Middle Ages, which uh, just focus on the transition from the classical uh, historiography to the medieval historiography. Just to do my best to find the links uh, which connected these two periods. I will finish it uh, complete uh, in the 2023 or something like this. At the present, uh, to your surprise, I'm uh, just to translate uh, uh, the famous Lex Familia of Burkhardt of the Worms. <laughs> yeah, great text. Great 11th century as well. Great text. <laughs> I just very, very curious about the familia. What, what's the meaning of a familia in that uh, context? In the famous capillary of Shalama, the village also used the similar word, just the familia, to just uh, to signify uh, the, the different various villas and his own control. Also, in the famous polyptych of the great monasteries, uh, this word also appears very often. So I think what this mean, this word mean, familia, as an institution or just something like this? Thank you, long, no, thank you, Longo. And it's, yeah, I mean, the, the concept of familia is so interesting, isn't it? Because obviously it's not the same as the modern English family at all. It's a very different concept, even though it sounds similar. But thank you. Uh, Yin. Okay. Yeah, I uh, uh, I have several uh, projects to uh, working simultaneously, um, which uh, I don't know when I'll end it. But uh, the first is, uh, is still I'm, I'm interested in the last years of Charlemagne. I mean, how, especially how he... Uh, his idea of reform, you know, a uh, new idea, his uh, some changing idea of reform of his uh, in his last years, which I discussed a little bit in my uh, in a little uh, a paper I just published. But uh, I would like to continue continue this uh, uh, this topic. And second, in uh, theoretically, I'm I'm not translating uh, Stuart Early's new book, The Making and Unmaking of, of the Carlingians. Uh, that's uh, a fascinating book. In theory, I am translating it, but uh, I don't know when I, I will finish this job. Uh, the third, I mean, uh, is I'm I'm now I'm in a workshop with uh, several other uh, scholars in other disciplines to to study that to study the uh, the Count Lovich, the, the King's Two Bodies, which is. Uh, I I I want I maybe I need to contribute to the you know uh, the idea of the medieval king, kingdom kingdom so uh, kingship so it has something to do with the 11th century right <laughs> there is this discussion about the you know the the Normans the anonymous which is this discussion about the uh, 
Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, the liturgy centers, uh, liturgical centers, yes. uh, Christ, Christ centered kinship. So we're doing something uh, beyond the Carolingian uh, period. Uh, that's uh, the, another project I'm working on. Um, Kantorovich is one of those books which is very often cited and very seldom read. I think it's uh, everyone talks <laughs> about it, no one actually reads it. But yes, well, except you, Ian, and this that sounds fascinating. Um, yeah. Um, we should probably leave it there. Thank you both so much for offering your perspectives on, on and giving some insight into how early medieval and medieval uh, European history is taught in China. It's been a great honour and, and a pleasure to talk to you both today. Thank, Thank you very so much, much for inviting us. It's a very uh, exciting experience for me. Thank you for us.